Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Insero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. In the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency sets air quality standards, although tougher standards have been proposed by the American Thoracic Society, or ATS. At the recent ATS 2021 International Conference, Laura Gladson, a research scholar with the Air Quality Program at NYU's Marin Institute of Urban Management, presented findings from the latest Health of the Air annual report. The ATS report estimated the thousands of deaths and illnesses that could be prevented if the U.S. adopted stronger air quality standards for levels of fine particulate matter and ozone as recommended by the ATS. In this episode of Managed Carecast, Laura Gladson, a PhD candidate, talks about the methodology and research in the report, which is aimed at policymakers and anyone else responsible for public health. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so I'm I'm really happy to be here, by the way. Thanks for having me. I'm a PhD candidate with the Department of Environmental Medicine at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine and also a researcher with NYU's Merit Institute of Management. And my research focuses on the health impacts of air quality, particularly from a policy and a community perspective. Um, at the Marin Institute, we focus on translational research where we, we really work at the intersection of research and policy analyze data to produce results that are meaningful to stakeholders and policymakers who are interested in improving local air quality and reducing health impacts in their communities. And I've actually been involved with the project we're going to be talking about today since its beginning several years ago. But outside of that, I do have a strong interest in environmental justice and mitigation efforts in the context of a changing climate. So at the recent ATS 2021 International Conference, which as we talked was last week, you presented research related to the ATS Health of the Air report. Can you just talk a little bit about that report and tell me if that's an annual report? Yeah, it is an annual report um, done by the Merit Institute in collaboration with the American Thoracic Society. The reason it's an annual report is our pollution estimates are based on the EPA design values, the three-year design values that they publish every year. And those design values are essentially how the federal government defines uh, counties air pollution. And so they're measurements from the federal ground monitors and they're used to produce a single value for each pollutant to represent their pollution level in that county. It's kind of the three-year average of whatever year's being published. And so we have these for all the monitored counties in the US and these values are used to determine whether a county is in compliance with our federal air quality standards. And so what the Health of the Air Report does is we take these pollution values and we compare what the pollution really was with an adjusted data set where, you know, in this, this scenario, the county met the American Thoracic Society's recommended air quality levels. And these are actually different levels than what our federal standards are. And so what we're doing is saying, hey, like if your county was able to meet the ATS recommended air quality standard, you would prevent this many adverse health impacts in your city or in your county. And I can go into a little bit more kind of the reasoning behind some of that, if you want. Sure. Yeah, that would be great. And 
Can you also discuss how it was conducted and the use of these ground monitoring stations and where they're placed and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot we can go into here. So we can just talk about the ground monitors first. So there's a ground monitoring network that is specifically federally compliant with their specifications. And so, you know, there's a lot of quality control issues and they're managed by highly trained personnel. And there's typically only one or maybe two of these ground monitors per county. And these are the monitors that are used to determine, like I said, those design values that are then used to determine if the county is meeting the air quality standard or if they need to make a plan with in kind of in uh, cooperation with EPA to make some changes and then lower their pollution levels. And so I guess some of the limitations, we could talk about that a little bit later, but there are of course some limitations to using ground monitoring data. The reason we use it here is because this is a policy driven report with implications at the policy level, you know, how counties are meeting the federal standard. And so we use the same method that the EPA would use in determining the pollution levels in each county. Um, and so what we do with these numbers is we, we're, and specifically we're looking at PM 2.5 and ozone as our pollutants. We're looking at two PM 2.5 standards that we have at the national level. That's the long-term or the annual standard and the short-term standard or the daily standard for PM 2.5. And we also have the ozone standard, which is based on an eight hour max. Don't wanna get too much into the weeds there, but <laughs> there's different ways of calculating those averages. And so what we do is take those values. We have our baseline, which is essentially what the levels actually were in the counties. We adjust the monitoring values. These are daily values. We you know, have specific calculations to adjust them in a systematic way so that in the second situation, the county met the ATS recommendations. And so I guess I can back up a little bit and talk about why we have these ATS recommendations. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I'm jumping around a little bit here. Oh, no, that's fine. Essentially, there's a general consensus among air quality experts that our current national air quality standards are too high, um, that there's many health benefits to be gained by lowering the standards to lower levels that better align with the most up-to-date epidemiological literature. The EPA obviously goes through its own review process as it's required to by the Clean Air Act, uh, but this doesn't always result in national standards that meet what the scientific community would say is necessary to really protect public health. We see a very obvious example of this happening with our previous White House administration. The EPA administrator at the time essentially gutted the scientific process for reviewing the current literature and, and the studies that we have on the health impacts of air pollution. And, you know, we're putting people on these panels, not scientific experts, but people with clear links to the fossil fuel industry taking away some of these review panels of outside experts that have been part of the process for years. So most recently during the review of these standards, they were not changed, even though really looking at the literature, they should have been changed. Um, they should have been lowered. And so the ATS itself is a society, you know, of air quality scientists, as well as clinicians in respiratory health. And so their environmental health policy committee actually looks at the literature themselves and determines what they think would really be the best standard um, at the federal level. So we use those ATS levels instead of the federal standard when we're looking at kind of how many health impacts we could be preventing. So like I said, we have these this kind of a pollution increment comparing 
based, you know, business as usual versus if we were able to meet the standard. We actually run it through a program called FENMAP that is an EPA created program. It has all the health impact functions that are derived from the epidemiological literature. We can run our pollution values through that, those pollution increments, and it, um, by using these health impact functions, gives us actual counts of different health endpoints um, that are associated with that pollution increment. And we do this at the county level. So we have estimates for every county in the US with um, monitored, with ground monitors. When you talk about the ground monitoring stations in different counties in the US, are there some areas of the country, some states that have very few ground monitoring yes. stations? Like who decides where these get placed? That's a really great question. Um, the answer is yes, there are places that do not have monitors at all. There are places that have far fewer. Typically, we're not going to see as many ground monitors in our rural locations. You know, they tend to be um, centralized near population centers because, you know, if you have more people exposed to the same amount of air pollution number-wise, you have more impacts. So that's one problem. The second problem is they typically are not located near hotspots or near roads. You know, the counties don't put them right next to the roads. They put them somewhere else because they want to meet the standard, of course. And there's some other structural, structural reasons for that. And so you might be missing hotspots, you might be missing pollution hotspots. And so if anything, I would guess that our health um, estimates in the study and others are quite an underestimate. And we actually did a sub-analysis this year where we kind of made a rough estimate just based on the population counts and the incidence um, rates of these different health impacts in these non-monitored counties. We found that you know, the impacts aren't as large, relatively speaking, as the monitored counties, most likely, but they're still significant and we're still missing, missing those impacts. Of course, like I said, the reason we use this is this is the EPA's method. Um, we're hoping in some future studies to incorporate some satellite, remote sensing satellite data, which is really taking some big leaps lately regarding their spatial and temporal resolution. And we're also hoping to tease out um, some of the impacts of wildfires. Our results here don't include major wildfire events typically because those are considered ex excluded days. They don't have to count towards a county's air pollution when it comes to meeting the standard. You know, they don't want to be punished for having a wildfire they couldn't control. Yeah, so it's very interesting because I mean, obviously, you're still people are still being affected by those huge events, but at the same time, you do have these wildland fires, whether this is a wildfire or a prescribed burn, that's still going to be affecting people at lower level, you know, it's kind of these small burns that wouldn't be included in an exceptional event. So we're kind of hoping to tease some of that out in our next report. So there are certainly drawbacks to that. And it's just a matter of, you know, how they determine what the level is at the federal level, as well as kind of the technology we have available to us. So the ATS standards are stricter, more stringent than the federal EPA standards. And mm -hmm, yes. when you looked at the levels of, I don't know, excess deaths, excess illnesses, or morbidity and mortality that could have been prevented with stricter standards, what did you find here? Yeah, so we found this year approximately 15,000 deaths, 3,000 lung cancer incidence events, 33,000 major morbidities, and 40 million work and school loss days approximately every year could be prevented if all of our monitored counties were able to meet the ATS recommended standards. And this is for PM 2.5 and ozone, like I said. I don't know if your listeners would be too interested in all the specific standards and what 
what they are compared to the ATS. But one of note this year is the long-term PM 2.5 standard, which we have a lot of research on and we have we know a lot about the health impacts of the long-term PM 2.5 standard. And so previously the ATS recommended it to be 11 micrograms per meters cubed and they just lowered it to eight. And so these results are based on meeting that eight. And we really saw a huge spike this year compared to previous years in preventable health impacts. And it's not as though those impacts weren't happening before, it's just that we weren't accounting for them. But as PM has really been reduced in the US over the last few decades, we're able to do studies and make observations that what were once considered low concentrations, you know, eight was traditionally considered low, but we still see significant health impacts. I mean, we're talking thousands of people dying. So that was significant this year, something that we were able to find. And we also this year um, did the same analysis, but just using the EPA standards instead. So these less protected standards and the preventable health impacts from just meeting those are just a fraction of what we're finding um, compared to the ATS standards. For PM, this is only about a tenth as many health impacts by meeting the EPA standards compared to meeting the ATS standards for PM 2.5. And by long-term PM2 standards, um, what do you mean exactly by long-term? Is that something that builds up and sticks around over time? And Yeah, so generally speaking, it would be your chronic exposure. Yes, so let's just kind of your cumulative exposure to PM2.5, whereas a short-term PM2.5 exposure, in other words, an acute exposure, you know, you might have a high pollution event for a few days, and that would be causing some more acute health impacts versus, you know, with long-term, you're going to be seeing chronic illness. You're going to be seeing, you know, all cancers, you know, lung cancer. So that's kind of the difference there. And the way the values are actually calculated, the long-term is based on an annual standard. It's actually the annual average that averaged over that three-year period. And then for the short-term, it's a bit more complicated. It's based on the 98th percentile. And so, because you want to get kind of those high pollution events. So that's kind of the difference that's going on there. And why is just lung cancer singled out for illness? And you say, you know, 30, yeah. 33,000 additional illnesses within that. Do you know or if you're talking about asthma or COPD or other actual named respiratory illnesses? That's a great question. So for lung cancer, it's just a very high mortality diagnosis the five-year survival rate is very low. And so mm -hmm. we pulled that one out specifically because it's not really a true comparison of that versus just getting hospitalized once for a respiratory event. Um, so then speaking of those morbidity events, yes, that's going to include acute myocardial infarction, uh, chronic bronchitis. We have cardio and cardiovascular and respiratory um, hospital admissions. So these are all hospital admissions. Um, we also have asthma-related emergency department visits. So that's kind of a drawback too, is that we're not capturing, you know, someone having an asthma episode, but they don't go to the ER or, you know, someone having respiratory, you know, pretty severe respiratory symptoms, but they don't go to the hospital for it. So, and we, we don't break these down in this report because that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we're doing here is we're really trying to go at this from a policy perspective and what's going, what are going to be meaningful numbers and information for policymakers and stakeholders, and they're trying to push for improving air quality at the local level. But we do have those numbers if someone was, you know, particularly interested in 
breaking it down, you know, specifically by each of these health endpoints. And when you say this is done from a policy perspective, is that who you uh, send the report to, hope they read it, you, you know, state officials, federal yeah, officials? Yeah, yeah. Specifically, the ATS, you know, makes these recommendations when they do send that to the EPA and including these numbers in that recommendation, you know, back, backing those recommendations up. And generally, yeah, we try to reach both, you know, at all levels of government um, policymakers, you know, as well. It's, it's not so much a report focused for the individual. It's not like we're giving people, you know, your individual risk value. They're, they're just counts. But, you know, for someone who's very, you know, community minded, I'm sure it would be interesting. Oh, wow, you know, 100 people in my county are going to the hospital every year because of our air pollution. Like, maybe that's something we need to talk about. Are there any counties that stand out or, and the ones that aren't there just means they don't have the monitoring station. So you can't yes. see that there. Yeah, right. exactly. If they're not on the list or, well, we, we list, I think we list them all, but, but either way, if they don't have any counts, if they don't have any numbers, they met the ATS standard. They met the ATS recommendations. So, and, you know, for this report, they're good. That doesn't mean there's not health impacts occurring there. It could be occurring at even lower concentrations than we're, than we're looking at. Um, and then your second question was about, what was your second question? Are there any counties that stand out oh, uh, as being particularly yeah. parts of the country? Um, yeah, parts of the, well, so parts of the country, it's interesting, California actually accounts for about half of all these health impacts across the whole country. Got it. And that's probably a matter of both large population, obviously, but also they have some industrial and traffic, you know, clear sources of air, air pollution going on over there. So there's kind of multi-factor situation. And California too has several, several of their cities. We have, we put out lists of the cities with the most to gain if they were able to meet ATS recommendations. And so California has several on that list. This year, we actually found Chicago to be on both of our ozone and PM lists of the most to gain. And this mainly is because we only recently received EPA data, um, ground monitoring, monitoring data from part of the US over the last couple of years. So we're finally able to you know, take them into account and see what those counts are. When you say most gain, you mean what they would have to gain in these yeah. health effects if they we, did We try that. to have a positive outlook, right. like, hey, if you were able to lower your pollution level here, you could prevent you know, so many deaths in your county. Not like, oh my gosh, you're so terrible. Look, all people. you know, it's just, it's, it's a good, because it is, it's an opportunity for, you know, local leaders as well as federal, but you know, it's an opportunity to improve the situation. So once you have the information, you can act on it. That makes sense. Is yeah. there anything else you want to add or that I forgot to ask? I guess one thing is I'm, this is more of my personal opinion, but I'm, I'm optimistic for updating these standards, hopefully in the near future, in part because President Biden signed an executive order on his first day um, regarding protecting public health and the environment. And so he is basically telling all federal agencies, look at everything that was done by the previous administration and make sure we're still, you know, make sure we don't need to go back and like undo or fix something in order to protect public health. And part of that was a direct mandate to the EPA to review the PM 2.5 and ozone standards. And we also have um, EPA Administrator Michael Regan coming out and saying, you know, we want to base this on the best available science, We're putting back in this like good scientific process for going through the review the way we've always done it based on, you know, expert advice and the, and the current science. 
so I'm personally optimistic, or at least I think that we have a good case to say, hey, these are what the scientific community are recommending these levels. This is what the ATS is saying. Look, we have numbers to back it up. This is kind of a goal for your administration. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll at least see the levels be put lower. And I hope they'll put them as low as we're recommending. Uh, it's quite a bit lower. Currently, the EPA long-term PM2.5 standard is 12. So we're asking for it to be down to eight, which is, you know, it's a big push, but I think it's needed. It'll also be interesting to see if more industry gets on board. I mean, I've started looking at electric cars for the future. You know, when I finally get around yeah. to replacing mine, the F-150, first electric truck, you know, some really interesting things are happening. Maybe that's in response to consumer demand or. Yeah, I hope so. Happening. Like I said, you know, I think a lot more, I do think a lot more people are becoming, you know, with COVID a little bit more socially conscious and kind of aware of how things impact them that are impacting the whole community. So hopefully along with this push, you know, to kind of combat the climate crisis, we have some, you know, attention on our air quality standards too. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. For all of us at AGMC, thanks for listening. For more about this issue, visit agmc.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at agmc.com or follow us on Twitter at agmc underscore journal. And if you like Managed Carecast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.